I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests this week, two segments, two great conversations. First up, a Sports Media Roundtable with Boston Globe's Chad Finn and Austin Carp of the Sports Business Journal. We get into a lot of stuff. Very heavy on women's basketball, LSU's win over Iowa and the incredible viewership number that that sport got. So we go pretty deep into that, what we think it means and... Uh, the Caitlin Clark effect and, and everything else. Um, that was a, that was a fun conversation with me. Talking about Jim Nance signing off on the Final Four for the last time. Men's tournament viewership numbers. The incredible success of MLB and these short shorter games. They have been absolutely uh, fantastic. And then we finish up with uh, the value of a verified Twitter check for uh, newsbreakers such as Adam Schefter, Adrian Wojnarowski, and uh, and I think you'll enjoy that if you're on Twitter. They are followed by CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman, and we go heavy on the WWE Endeavor merger. Uh, Alex Sherman is the one who broke this story initially, so he is wired on it. What Alex thinks of the deal writ large, why Endeavor wanted it, why WWE wanted it, if there's legit synergies here, the valuations of the deal, uh, WWE's intellectual property and what that means. And then we finish up with Alex's quick take on where things stand with the NBA. So Chad Finn and Austin Carp to start. Alex Sherman to finish coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, it's another edition of a familiar roundtable with the Boston Globe Sports Media writer Chad Finn and Sports Business Journal Managing Editor slash Digital Austin Carp. Before we get going, Chad, I did want to rectify this. I wanted you to have a chance to promote the book that you edited at the top as opposed to the bottom oh i, I thought we always uh we closed with our uh anything else uh you want to say that's uh that's that's where we usually do it uh, yeah i have a um book out on the history of the red sox it's uh the boston globe story of the red sox it's all of our it's a compilation of the globe's baseball writing through the years uh on the team uh the globe's actually uh older than the red sox by a couple of decades so been covering them since the beginning and uh it's all the all the uh good stuff you'd imagine lee montville gammons uh, ray fitzgerald people like that all right so if you are a red Sox fan hit that head to amazon check that out you can uh you can purchase uh that book immediately all right austin do you have any books you want to promote or can we move on to the to the round table part of the I'm, I'm working on a leaflet of my orioles success over the last 40 years <laughs> congratulations on that a lot of mike boddicker and Mike Flanagan, oh, yeah. Cal Ripken. Um, all right, let's get going. Very excited to talk about this. This is obviously a sport that I have written about away from media. So this is a pretty incredible weekend for women's college basketball. The final number, final number we're sort of still waiting on because ESPN announced 9.9 million viewers for LSU, Iowa, as in terms of fast nationals. It may go down a little bit. I think when all is said and done, um, but well, but the reality is it shatters 
the existing record in the ESPN era for most watch final uh, by a ton. That was mid five millions for UConn, Oklahoma. Shadow it shatters the record for the most watch NCAA tournament game in the women's tournament ever, which we believe, and thanks to our buddy John Lewis at Sports Media Watch, is eight point one million for a um, for a game back in nineteen ninety two on CBS. This game peaked at twelve point six million viewers. It is an incredible, um, just an incredible inflection moment. For women's basketball, this growth trend has been going on for a long time. So it's, um, you know, it's not it's not a moment per se. It's just sort of the, um, it's where this sport has been heading. But Austin, you're our viewership person, and I want you to put these numbers in context. I mean, this is a game changing number, right, in our world and sports viewership. You know, I got a lot of questions headed into Sunday. Like, what is this going to get? And all I could say is it was going to be a record. I did not see this high number coming. It is astronomical it is you know like john lewis pointed out it yeah it's the best for any women's college basketball game ever and the best since 1992 it was a stanford virginia final four matchup on cbs so before you know espn disney took over that deal prior to the 96 tournament and it, it's just an incredible number i think it's better than almost any stanley cup final game since the 70s it, it's outdrawing some big-time men's sports properties, the Daytona 500 most recently, stuff that you would not finger, stuff, stuff that is making people go, wow. And it's had that kind of effect all tournament, and this was really just the icing on the cake. Awesome. Before I go to Chad, any other like sort of interesting contextual things that uh, would help my listeners realize just how big this was? Because you put out a couple of different things that, you know, this game was bigger than this, this game topped this. What did, what did you find? Like we talked about the Daytona 500, I think that was a big eye-opener for a lot of people saying the stick drew better than the Super Bowl of motorsports. <laughs> I mean, it, it was higher than two of the New Year's Six Bowl games, the Sugar Bowl and the Orange Bowl this past season. And it beat out the lone Cowboys game on Amazon Prime. So, you know, wow. that's a package that's getting, a, what, a, close to a billion dollars uh, annually and it outdrew that. I, I know this is one game and it's a championship game, but I mean, LSU Iowa was in the neighborhood of what, you know, the Raiders Steelers got on NFL network on Christmas, what game three of the NBA finals drew for Warriors Celtics. And was right in that neighborhood of what the opener for Astros Phillies did of the world series this past year. Just huge, huge number. Chad, from your perspective, what was your evaluation when you saw ESPN put out that final number? Uh, well, that 9.9 million jumped out at me a little bit, and I, I went back and looked at just for our sort of our local perspective on ratings here in, in Boston, and it's the same number they got for Celtics Heat Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, which is just, uh, uh, if that doesn't tell you how big this game was and how much of a um, how much of an audience drew out, it drew outside of uh Previous expectations. Uh, I, I don't know what else would, uh, at least in the market that I'm in. You know, the Daytona number and uh, the Cowboys Amazon game um, uh, also offers sort of that same perspective in the broader sense. But it's just incredible, and I, I'd push back a little on saying that it's been building to this. It has been building, but this is this is an incredible leap. I mean, what was it? Four point nine million last year. I think the ESPN thing said. Uh, up 103%. It went from 4.9 million 
to 9.9. That is a, a, a staggering. And I know a gun to my head prior to the game, and I had to guess an astronomical number. I probably would have capped it at around eight. So yeah, right. it's just it, it. I'm I'm stunned, and I deal with this stuff all the time. Uh, but a shot, what, maybe a shot at that 92 game is surpassing that, but not doing what it did. So yeah. here's what I would say again is like, again, and you know, not to come off like a self-important ass, but obviously somebody who <laughs> covered, uh, covered the game as a women's basketball writer, you know, in the same time. And in addition to doing it in media, yeah. when I say like this was sort of coming, if you look at the, and Austin can obviously back this up. If you look at the progression of the women's title game since 2018, Viewership has been going up on ESPN, not even on ABC. They start to obviously in uh, increase the programming windows, so we start to get better windows there. Then this tournament happens. You draw $5.5 million for the semifinal with Iowa and LSU. Iowa, yeah. You're getting um, incredible interest in terms of social media metric numbers, the Instagrams and stuff like that. Tickets are going for a crazy amount for a— for a title game. So that's what I'm saying in terms of like the growth was happening, but I totally agree with both of you guys. Had you asked me like what the number would have been, I would have been like, I think they're going to get, um, if all things sort of work, you know, six, six and a half million. I'm, I'm with you. Like this, this number was crazy. And this is, let me get back to you, Austin on this. I think undoubtedly there was great interest in Iowa versus South Carolina because mm -hmm. you have Caitlin Clark, who people are very, you know, household name in a in 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 a way now in sports. Uh, the Steph Curry kind of resemblance in terms of everybody can sort of identify with somebody who's like shooting from you know crazy distance and stuff like that. Um, South Carolina dynastic team was hadn't been, hadn't lost in a long time. Hall of Fame coach in Don Staley, de facto WNBA number one player in Aaliyah Boston. So you had essentially what is always a great narrative, right? It's mm -hmm. like the impossible to beat team uh, can like this singular great player shoot him down. She does in a in an incredibly yeah. uh, interesting, fascinating game. That sets the momentum up for the final. I lead with all that to ask you, Austin, next year is fascinating when it comes to Caitlin Clark because the Big Ten just signed its deal with – uh, Fox, CBS, NBC, particularly Fox, has a ton of Big Ten basketball inventory between Big Fox, FS1, and Big Ten Network. If you ask me, my sense is that she may be the one athlete that can draw some casual fans to regular season games where you might not have expected this for women's college basketball. What do you think? I, I'm not sure I would normally say this, and I'm someone who is a big flag waver for women's basketball, but I do think there is something to the Caitlin Clark television effect. How do you see it? I think there is. If I'm Fox, you know, this past basketball season was the first time Fox or anybody on broadcast TV had a dedicated Saturday night, you know, primetime college basketball window. And it actually helped them. They piggybacked, you know, and, and got some nice numbers there. What if instead of a men's game, you're putting on Iowa women's basketball on a Saturday night? See if it can compete with some of the men's numbers you get. The, the evidence is clearly there. I would like to see Fox kind of experiment with that and, you know, see if they can draw an audience with a women's game, given the inventory that they have. I think there's some creative things you can do with the women's game now. You know, kudos to ESPN over these last couple of years. They gave the tournament in particular – 
more exposure on broadcast TV. And that has helped lift these numbers. More windows on ABC. Every game is on now in the tournament. People can't take that for granted. It wasn't like that just three or four years ago. Okay. You can now see every game, you know, during the the early rounds, you're seeing two games of each uh, Saturday, Sunday on ABC. That's a big, that's a big lift. It's a big exposure. And you're getting to see these big name players. And if you told me at the beginning of the season, when Paige Beckers went down, okay, that there was going to be a vacuum filled like that, like she was able to do it, like Kate was able to do, I would have told you you were crazy because she's Paige Beckers was such a huge name. And to see the numbers come out in a year where UConn didn't even make the final four and Paige Beckers was down, like the sport is hitting on all cylinders at the right time when, you know, the media rights deal is up as well. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll let you sort of comment on this, Chad. One last thing, um, heading forward, and Austin made a great point. Paige Beckers is back, presumably, let, knock on wood, let's hope her injury is is good. You'll have, obviously, Caitlin Clark back uh, for two years for both those players if they take their COVID years, which they could. Angel Reese is back, and her Q rating just went skyward, yeah. uh, just given um, uh, how amazing she played this year and in the finals, and obviously as well as just trash-talking Caitlin Clark at the end. Man, sports needs, I mean, the reality is like that stuff draws interest. You know, you can be a moralist or a Puritan, or you could live in reality. People are going to be interested um, in LSU next year. The um, The sport has a lot of young, star-like talent. I think um, Van Lith is back for Louisville. Cameron Brink, I believe, is back for Stanford. Your daughter, Chad, I believe, played uh, <laughs> high school basketball, right? Like, so you, you're... You're yeah. sort of aware of this. It does feel, again. Mackenzie Holmes at uh, Indiana, first team All-Americans from Maine. That, yeah. So, like, again, you have to be realistic. Like, this isn't college football. This isn't the NFL. But it does feel like this sport, like, is going to be different heading forward, particularly as the NCAA now will navigate. Do they sell the women's tournament outright, which they'll get 80 to 100 million, or do they package it with the other stuff? It's just, again, as someone who's covered the sport for a long time, like 2023, I think we look back on 2023, 10, 15 years from now as a very big moment in women's basketball. Well, you, what you, they need and what women's college basketball, by they, I mean the TV networks too, uh, they need the next Caitlin Clarks to come along, the next Angel Reese's for this generation of players to inspire a next generation of players that uh, are good or as good or, or better. And, and Caitlin Clark feels like something new in college basketball because of her shooting range. And she's a pretty incredible passer, too. And I, I thought it was really remarkable during the uh, the ESPN2 broadcast the other day when uh, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi were on there and they're kind of doing the Manning cast thing. And I think it was Bird said to Taurasi, you know, she's she's both of us. She's a combination of both of us. She yeah. she, she plays with... You know, Tarasi's kind of swagger and uh, uh, Sue, Sue Bird's court vision. And I'm sure if you ask Caitlin Clark about that, she would she would say, well, this person, this person, this person are the ones I grew up wanting to be. And for players like her and players like Angel Reese, who's, you know, she's got over a million Instagram followers now. It's uh, um, they're the ones who are going to inspire the, the next group of players that just keep the sport getting uh, more and more yeah. popular. And Chad, you talk about the, you know, inspiring the next generation, something that the women's college game has that the men's game doesn't have. And they're not, not at all. Yeah. NBA. They're staying. You exactly. talk about all these players coming back. You are going to see these magnificent players on the women's side 
for, I think, a minimum of three years. They are actually part of the school. Most of them are going to come back. So if there's an incredible freshman, hey, you're going to follow this person during their collegiate career. They're not just taking off but with a one and done deal. I think casual fans were surprised Caitlin Clark has another year left because the they just kind of uh, she kind of maybe got on a lot of people's radar, especially older men who follow maybe follow the men's game, but not the women's game as closely. And, uh, you know, she's so good and you hear so much about her that there's probably just an assumption she'd be in the WNBA next year. So there is yeah. uh, something to build on incredibly with her. And Austin, you hit on it. Um, the fact is that the players that they stay in school for a long time. In fact, we may get, you know, five, six years out of Paige Bukers, depending on what happens, like <laughs> yeah. red shirting and stuff like that with her injury. So you're totally right. It's just a different sport. She's on the Drew right. Timmy deal. Is that what? Uh, she's a lot. Hey, man. Don't, no, don't go. Paige Beckers is a, is, is a lottery, top three lottery pick. Uh, Chad. Oh, Let's not yeah. go the Drew Timmy. Let's not go the Drew Timmy route. Um, so, uh, I want to turn to the men's tournament and the final, as we tape this today in the afternoon of Tuesday, April 4th, the final numbers are not there for the men's tournament. The only thing all of us obviously know they're going to be way down versus last year. That's no genius take. Uh, But the biggest thing I think from last night in terms of like a media play is that Jim Nance signed off. Um, Mm He, uh, he calls his last final four, his streak of calling the final four in terms of the number of uh, final fours he's done. It'll never be broken in our lifetime. It's in the thirties. Ian Eagle's not calling the next 30 straight final fours. It's just (laughs) not going to happen. Um, so Austin, um, from your perspective, uh, how do you feel about Nance's legacy? I've said this many times. I think Jim Nance is a, is a good basketball broadcaster. I I don't shit on him at all. I do think Ian Eagle is a better basketball broadcaster. I think Kevin Harlan's a better basketball broadcaster. So I like the move. But Nance is a big voice or a big game voice. It's always been that way. I think he did that tournament um, well. And I think it's also the, t- the right time for him to, to walk away. I feel like in this case, it's – I don't know how Nance feels about it, but I-, I think if you're CBS, I think you made the right move at the right time. Yeah. I mean, he's been the voice of college basketball for my entire life since I could follow sports. Um, it'll be – honestly, they're replacing him with another giant. I, I think it's going from A plus like to an A, and I'm not. I, I'm excited to hear Eagle call it. And I know that I don't know if it's because Nance isn't going away. I'm going to continue to hear him on NFL broadcast. I'm going to hear his voice on the Masters. So maybe it's not as bittersweet for that for me at least. What about you, Chad? I think it's great that he. Uh paraphrase the golden girls theme when he said goodbye last night thank you for uh thank you for being my friends is that is that what his sign off was uh, yes yeah. but yeah no i i mean i i completely agree i i think he's um you know, a little sappy a little overly sentimental sometimes or they're too sugary or something like that but he calls a great game and he's always super prepared and if something happens with uh unexpected player he's right on top of that and i know that's production and uh you know people being in his ear too but uh, he i think with with the tournament where you have unlikely heroes come out of nowhere i always thought jim was really prepared with that but you know it's all in the big picture it's all a little over the top i mean he's gonna be saying hello friends again here with the masters in a couple of days and uh, we'll hear him 20 21, 22 games during the NFL season, including the playoffs. So it's not like he's going to be out of our sports fan lives where he's still going to be uh, super familiar all the time. Austin, what'd you make of the men's tournament or at least the data that we have 
so far. Incredible tournament when it came to upsets and and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, on a viewership play though, we lost. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you're going to believe this, but people like to watch blue bloods in college basketball. It's an amazing. I know. I'm, I, I have said this before, and sometimes <laughs> I get I get yelled at for that. But yes, this is uh, Sean McManus and the rest of these guys will always say we want upsets the the first two rounds, right? Yeah. And we want blue blue bloods the rest of the way. So you, you know, know, it feels like Austin. I feel it just feels. I mean, the, the, again, like viewership. So if this tournament is should be no surprise in terms of viewership, just because of how it played out on the court. Yeah, I mean, when the number comes in tonight, I, it's going to be close to a record low for a national championship. I think the bar that they have to stay above is something like between 16 and 16 and a half million for Villanova, Michigan in 2018, when that was on TBS, TNT, True TV. Um, I mean, CBS's low is just over 17 million when uh, Georgia Tech played UConn. I like to think that that was UConn's fault. I'm not going to slam on the bottom <laughs> you, like that. You Georgia Tech guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's. You know, the game wasn't close last night, and it's going to be tough. I'm curious to see with out of home now factored in whether CBS can stay above that that bar that was set a couple years back. What about how did you how how have you found it, uh, Chad, just in terms of, you know, again, I think as like a basket, if you're a basketball, like hardcore basketball fan, like it is fun to see like all these upsets. I love seeing a 16 beat a one. But, you know, this is a media podcast and like the realities of like television, particularly network television, are that like Kansas, North Carolina, Duke, like, et cetera. Like those are the schools that like draw national interest. Yeah, I feel like the final four probably would have been better served if it had one more blue blood. That's that stinks to say, because you like seeing the FAUs of the world and, uh, you know, San Diego State advance. But um, it, it isn't great for television. And I think. In a sort of a related way, it the the lack of star power as as it's helped escalate women's college basketball. It's really hurting the men's side now. You uh, you know the Miller kid at Alabama was is pro- probably going to be the highest draft pick out of the college game this year. The best players are aren't here very long, if at all. I mean, look back at like Duke the last uh, last decade. You know, Tatum for a year, Ingram for a year, Zion for a year. You, there's no continuity yeah. and as, uh, maybe it's my age group, but I I grew up watching basketball in the eighties and the Big East. The the storylines came back the next year. Chris Mullen was still there. Patrick Ewing was still there. Sir, the Syracuse guys, um, and to me that was the pinnacle. And this is nothing like that. And I, I think it hurts um, even for younger viewers. It it it, it hurts that uh, the, the, there's such a lack of familiar familiarity of the best players now. And the lack of talent. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like yeah. the top NBA picks. The game was ugly talk, last yeah. night. Yeah, you talk about Brandon Miller coming out. If you look at some of these projections for the top of the NBA draft, they're coming from Europe. They're coming from G League Ignite, or they're coming from overtime elite now. Like, who are the top players from college I should be watching? It just feels like there's less there, there's less and less of them each year. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually looked this up, Austin. Like, um, in the out of the Final Four, the there was only one player in the entire Final Four this year who was projected in the top twenty-five of like most credible NBA mock drafts. That's incredible, and 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 it was the kid, the the kid, the guard from Connecticut, and he wasn't even a top fifteen guy in any oh. of these mock drafts. So, um, I think you you totally hit on. And the one thing which the, that Chad said that, uh, and again, by the way, I want all these guys to be able to turn pro as whenever they want. Like to me, they've earned that sure. right. Yeah, I agree skill. too. Yep. That said. That said, unquestionably, 
if they even played two years in college, it would mean so much more for the college game, yeah. right? Because you'd have these guys back for a second year. But the world has changed, and they have, in my opinion, they have every right to come out either when they want or, and I don't blame them. Like, what if if you're going to school that essentially is just treating you essentially as a as an athlete, right? I mean, the student part is a joke. Why wouldn't you go to the G League and get paid? Play against higher quality players and and prepare yourself better for the draft. Like that just makes economic sense to me. No, it's an apprenticeship, and that I don't blame anybody for doing that for for going and perfecting your craft that you are going to do for a job for the bulk of your career. So right. I, yeah. I don't blame anybody for taking that path. But yeah, if you're gonna go to college, the only thing that would have been bigger than a year one of Zion Williamson at Duke would have been if he returned for year two. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that would have been, and, yeah, the numbers would have been nuts. And you know what's fascinating is, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like 15, 20 years ago, Victor uh, Wembenyama would, and if I mispronounce his name, I apologize. He Yama. That I totally mispronounced. You leave that in, Patrick. Leave my idiocy in. Um, <laughs> that guy would have been playing, right, in some American college as a freshman, which would have been incredible, right? And yeah. so um, it's... It's just, how do I sort of say this? College basketball, once upon a time, was absolutely like the Premier League in terms of like the greatest, like professional, oh, that's something wrong. The great, you know, the equivalent of the greatest soccer league in the world. Like, I don't know if that's the case anymore. You can make the argument maybe like the G League is, or if you want to include all the different foreign teams are. And that's where it's just different. Like it's the tournament is great because it's a one and done kind of thing. But I do think to get casual fans interested, I, I do think the lack of stars hurts, which is why the women's game to me is so interesting because you get Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and um, and all of these players like minimum three years, usually four or five. That's just the, no, the, the difference. It's just one of the drawbacks, I guess, of the globalization of basketball yeah. is that it's adopted this soccer academy style approach where it's just so disparate on there, there's so many options for people out there to right. take advantage of going pro younger. I mean, you just talked about Europe. These kids are. I mean, look at when Luca and, and Tony Parker's of the world, when they were going pro, it was early teens almost, or late teens. Yeah. They're not, you're not coming to go spend a year or two at Georgetown first anymore. And I support all this because I think these guys have every right to, 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 to yeah. collect some cash. But the game's been hurt by it. Yeah. 100%. The, just the yeah. quality the of it. Yes, 100%. But like your, your lifespan as an athlete is short. And I think you have to take advantage as to when. Um, there's a potential for you to make a um, life-changing money for the family. Do you think this changes with NIL with, uh, you know, like, a, I, yes, mean, I would have loved it, to see Scoot Henderson play in college basketball this year. For it, it does with, it does with the women. Like there's a, there's a legitimate financial reason why Caitlin Clark or Angel Reese or Paige Becker should stay in college. Mm -hmm. They can make more money. It has to get to that point with the men's, uh, college men's basketball chad where like a scoot henderson season and it's like i'll just make this up like i can make two million dollars playing at north carolina as opposed to 
uh, $500,000 playing in the G League. You right. know what I mean? Like, it's just going to be economics. Uh, but then you're going to have, you know, so many people wax and crying about, like, people, all these college kids making too much money and, tra- you know, whatever. Like, you know, I, I would respect the analysts who cry about this stuff if they decide to give back their ESPN money and, and call the games for free. <laughs> call the games for free. And then, right. I, to me, you're like, you're an absolute hero on this. Who cares? Um, just watch a game. Who cares what they're making? Right. Shut up and watch the game. All right, last uh, last two topics. Uh, I'm going to go to you, Austin. Um, average MLB game for the first 50 games of season, two hours and 39 minutes. Uh, Love it. David Schoenfield of ESPN.com. Major League Baseball, which is really one of the most horrifically uh, run organizations ever historically, just I, I, I cannot dislike commissioners enough. They have <laughs> they they have they have done it here in terms of incredible moves to make this game better. These rule changes are the best thing in my lifetime for Major League Baseball. Uh, I've watched a lot of baseball already. It is a manageable product now to hang out and watch. I think this is great. Austin, how, you know, in terms of sort of a like a media perspective, just in terms of like the enjoyment of a viewer, how, how much have you enjoyed these these opening games? Well, I think Chad will back me up here. Uh, watching the <laughs> opening Red Sox-Orioles game was not the best experience in terms of uh, <laughs> watching great baseball. But, yes, looking league-wide, keeping it close to two and a half hours is amazing. It is amazing for the future of the sport. If you can do that, you can keep it, keep it competitive. I like hearing how announcers like Kevin Brown and Masson are not really having to adjust their style too much. Okay, while they're calling the game, it's just by the time, you know, they're wrapping up whatever anecdote they were getting into, and there's the pitch. Like, it, it, it's it's working out well. It's working out time-wise. I want to see how it works with Fox and some of the national ratings. I want to, It looks like, from the RSN side at least, um, you know, on the Bally Sports RSNs, ignore all the bankruptcy stuff. Uh, you, yeah, numbers are <laughs> up, right? Num- yeah, numbers are, are looking all right. Uh, it, you know, the Mets set a record for opening day for, you know, on their team-owned RSN. The Yankees did incredibly well for an afternoon opener when they were opening up. It's it's a good start for baseball right now. It's looking good. The sh- I, I personally really like them getting rid of the shift. I like seeing those hits again. Yeah, same. So, I want to see if they can if they can continue this if they can continue in the dog days of summer to keep it at, at around two and a half hours. Let's see if they can maintain that. Chad, you as someone who's watched, obviously you probably had to watch the Red Sox games uh, wherever they've aired. From watching the Blue Jays, watching um, you have the baseball package here. Um, the one I, I think Austin's right. Like announcers don't seem to be impacted at all. What is what has changed is they they ha- they would sh- in my quick estimation they're showing less replays because they don't have enough time between mm-hmm. pitches so that that stuff sped up and some of the storytelling like if you got an analyst who just likes to wax for a while that's had to be cut short because the the pitch clock demands that you focus on the pitch how have you seen it like locally in boston if there's any changes based on the the pitch clock yeah it's really interesting i talked to uh, dave o'brien who uh you know, has done all kinds of different sports for espn and uh, the red sox nesson television play-by-play voice up here and joe Stiglione, who's been the red sox play-by-play voice on wei their their whatever their radio network was uh, years ago uh, since 1983. So he's been doing this a long time. And both of them said they didn't think it would be much of an adjustment because they've been uh, broadcasters. They remember what it was like when games are always two and a half hours. Well, 
particularly on the radio side, I've noticed that they've had an issue with it. They, uh, you, you cannot get into any kind of uh, story that even starts to meander um, mm. or anecdotes. Uh, I think the color analysts have really had to keep their uh, had, had to be more specific and tight with their comments. Uh, and I, I, as I said, I found this more obvious on the radio, but Nesson through these last couple of years, they would pack things so tightly on their broadcasts that often they got into the habit of missing the first pitch coming back from commercial break. So I'm really curious to see how that uh, evolves here as we, you know, get deeper into the season, have more information and data on, on uh, how they're handling this because they squeezed in as many reads and ads as they possibly could. Now they have, um, you know, they have left less time when they're in the booth and uh, uh, it's not really that noticeable, but I wonder if it becomes that way uh, as, as we get further into it. Normally, I would uh, I would morph here to the WWE Endeavor merger, <laughs> but I have CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman following you guys, so I'm going to let the, the man who broke the story discuss this. So you two are off the hook on that. Here's the last one. I uh, so, uh, And uh, I would have gotten the flex scheduling with the NFL, but since they decided to hiatus this, we can talk about this at another time. But uh, For now, suck. yeah. The owners suck, man. Like It's just so player-unfriendly. Obviously, I understand why Amazon wants it, but uh, it's going to pass eventually. Never... I think it passes. It is, of course, it's a hundred percent. Gee, I mean, has the NFL ever not passed anything that gets more um, coffers into their bank versus player safety? Like, of course, it's going to pass. I mean, I'm actually stunned that the the Giants or whoever else um, like decided to throw it down. And by the way, uh, now that we're on the subject of the NFL. Fuck you guys for trying to get Jim Trotter to sign an NDA. <laughs> with no, three no months severance. Can you believe that? Yeah, that freaking ain't happening. I love Jim Trotter. He's a great uh, colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated. But the audacity of that organization to try to pull that nonsense. I hope, I hope Trotter's got a great employment lawyer. And if he doesn't, uh, I don't know. Walk the streets of New York or Boston. You'll probably bump into about 15 of them. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Finally, that's my little filibuster. Thank you. Finally, um, Austin, I'm going to go to you. All right. You know, I, we were under the impression that Elon Musk was going to pull all the legacy uh, check marks from um, uh, people on Twitter. I think all three of us fa fa fall under that category, which, by the way, would be fine. Like, adios, check mark. It's, you know, it's never it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't think it means anything to you two guys. But what it really does mean something to in terms of the um, sports Twitter universe would be the newsbreakers. That's where I uh, like when all this sort of like, you know, all this sort of chatter about uh, think pieces about Musk and all that stuff. I find it interesting because obviously I find media very, very interesting. But in a sports context, the, the most interesting thing to me about that would be that Adrian Wojnarowski, Sham Shrenea, the Ian Rappaport's Schefter's, like their entire stock and trade yeah. is like you you believing, right, that they're authentic in this news. And if that check goes away and there could be a million different people impersonating them, I know it happens a little bit now, um, it really reduces like their value. Um, as of now, Musk, I think he's just basically kept it. I think the whole world has a blue check now, uh, which is fascinating in itself. But um, I don't know. Do you buy that in that like – the, the the people who would really be hurt by the, the you know the 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 de-verifying yeah. would be these newsbreakers, right? Because like that's 
that's really like their entire business I mean, model is that like, is during the MLB trade deadline, do we hear, you know, a fake Jeff Passon account or a fake yeah. Rosenthal account put out some news and it gets thousands of retweets. And I think you would, I agree. I think you would see more of that. You know, I'm not a breaker of, you know, news that regular fans want to hear about. Only the sports media nerds want to read, uh, you know, about ratings. So if I, you know, if I lose my check, I lose my check. I'm not going to lose any sleepover. But yeah, I think people that deal in the sorts of information you're talking about, the Wojnarowski's of the world, the Schefter's of the world, the Passons, et cetera. Yeah, I think it is important to them for veracity. Yeah, and I mean, Chad, you could also obviously extend this too to any news organization. Um, you know, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Athletic or that I work like, with, I, you know, uh, or a government organization, or you know, an yeah, yeah, that's putting I, out important yeah, information. It's, I'm glad you said that, Austin, because again, like, I, I, I mean, I, I absolutely support any of these organizations not um, paying money to be verified. And, um, I think it would be (laughs) ludicrous for the Boston Globe, for example, to like reimburse and, or like sort of, uh, promote their people for, for for joining Twitter blue. I mean, it just, what a waste of an expensive money, especially given that we are all the creators of this stuff. Right. You take, you know, LeBron James walks away. William Shatner walks away. You get enough people walking away. Twitter, 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 Twitter's 20 million, 20 billion, 20 billion valuation becomes 3 billion. Um, but Chad, like the, the Austin does hit on something. And again, we're going to get a little bit away from sports media, but like it, it does like one of the things that I appreciate about Twitter. And I have been on this, I think as long as you guys, whatever we go, we all go back to like 2008 or 2009 or something like that. Like if there's a real life emergency in your town, you are checking out like the local fire department Twitter feed or the police department Twitter feed or the yeah. weather service Twitter feed. Like, and if I see that blue check, like, like that to me is like, okay, like this is the authentic feed and someone's not fucking around here. And that's where this stuff I always thought could like lead into like real Armageddon, Armageddon and chaos if uh, if the the current owner of Twitter like started playing games with that kind of verification. Because I do think there would be people who would fake – you come up with some fake accounts and just try to create chaos basically. Yeah, telling you so, you know some disaster is happening in the town right. that's completely made up. I mean – one of the big issues of this is that you're suddenly asking people to change their habit. You know, they look and they see the blue check mark and they authentic real person. Uh, and they're not going to go look to, to click on the account and see that it has seven followers and it's not shams after all, you know, it's, right. it's someone who put a zero where, uh, you know, an O was in his name or, or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, created this totally phony account. And now you have the, you know, they have the paid for blue check mark. Um, that's going to be enough for people still because that, that habit is hard to shake. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's going to be a real problem in, in major and minor ways. You know, the minor ways being you got to double check on what you're, uh, and triple check on what you're seeing when it comes to, you know, what we talk about sports and ratings and, TV and things like that, but you also have to double check about the more important stuff that, uh, you know, has to do with how the world's functioning. Yeah. And also I'll just, fin- I'll just finish this up with you. I've always believed this. I mean, I, I can't prove it obviously because we do live in a social media Twitter world, but I, I don't think the Schefters or the Wojnowski's or the, the Shams or, or Rappaport or any of these newsbreakers and you pick your sport, 
the the money that they have that they are being paid and god bless them and their agents for getting it no 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 issues on that at all get what you can mm-hmm. these gigantic corporations without their twitter following none of that none of those kind of multi-million dollar uh contracts would exist because i think from i think fairly informed analysis that companies like espn value like the Twitter feed so much because they feel that they can one get that audience paying attention to what a Schefter's breaking and two then own the Chiron on their own linear television channels by saying our newsmaker ba- broke the Whoa, so colon. That, yeah. 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 So that just gets back to like the that gets back to my point on the importance for them of verification is so huge because it, it's like it's it's their entire it's a big part of their media ecosystem, I think. No, I agree. All right. Um, anybody else got anything else? You know, I, I just want to say? circle back to the MLB thing real quick. Yeah, please. I know, like, Rob Manfred has been a pinata for years. <laughs> yes. And Deservedly so. He's got to get credit for this. Him, Chris Maranac, right under him. Like, yep. Kudos yeah, to for hiring guys. Theo. And for hiring, yeah, I mean, no, but listen, they, they, he, you get credit if the changes are great, and the changes are great. So, so far, so good, and kudos to him and his team for knocking it out. That, Chad, this is a sports business journal guy praising a business guy. Can you believe it? I mean, hey, news, we've news, knocked him just as much as every anybody else. News, news flash at eleven. <laughs> he, right, Austin he Carp, deserves he is, it. Yeah, Austin Carp is always front and center on this podcast. Let me just say that, all right? This ju- he's a front and center guy. Uh, Chad Finn is the uh, Boston Globe sports media writer. Austin Carp, of course, Sports Business Journal managing editor. Um, I will obviously have you guys uh, back. There's a lot coming up uh, with the NFL draft. We'll get into baseball. And at a certain point, um, I do want to go big on the NBA because I'm kind of just fascinated by the upcoming media rights negotiations because um oh yeah we got we got to figure out like how serious or not serious discovery is because if discovery ever decides to actually get out of basketball then the nba rights become a massive free-for-all which is going to be real interesting we we all agree on this absolutely yes all right uh buy chad's uh book that he edited and uh <laughs> and, and and pay for the sports uh, business journal it's basically um you can't basically be in those are two quality have, pitches, Rich. We appreciate yeah. that. Have interest in sports media without being part of the sports uh, business uh, journal and daily. It's uh, I don't even know where I'd be uh, without where I would be probably is uh, selling coffee somewhere. All right, Chad Finn and uh, and Austin Carp. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. All right, as I said at the top, uh, very pleased. To have CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman. Um, if you uh, if you're interested in the sports and business space, um, he uh, frequently breaks stories, including the one we are going to talk about today. On Monday of this week, WWE announced that it would merge with UFC to form a new publicly traded company controlled by the Endeavor Group. Endeavor will own a 51% stake. In the new combat sports and entertainment company, while WWE shareholders will have the remaining 49%, a major, major merger in the worlds of sports and entertainment. And I am pleased to be joined 
by Alex Sherman to talk about it. Alex, one welcome to congrats because you scooped everybody on this one. It's got to feel good. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. All right. I want to start very big here, and um, I think you can educate my audience on this. What do you make of this deal writ large? I think it was the most logical landing point for WWE once it it seemed apparent that WWE was going to do some sort of deal here. Uh, I never fully bought the logic that Vince McMahon would sell WWE and walk away from the company, which is something that he said publicly. And in fact, WWE even put it in a filing. Uh, uh, Vince McMahon sort of has to say that for shareholder reasons. If he gets a bid, he, he even though he's the controlling shareholder of WWE, it is a publicly traded company. Uh, and he has, and the board of WWE has fiduciary responsibilities uh, that would allow him to have to take the, the best overall offer uh, from any sort of company. So he came out and said that, but just logic indicated to me that if you were going to sell WWE, uh, he would certainly prefer to sell it in a situation where he could be a part of the go forward company. WWE is his baby. It's been his life for uh, decades and decades. Uh, he got into the business through his father. So this structure where uh, he can continue to be his executive chairman of this new company, his family can keep an economic interest in the company moving forward. Uh, it just it makes a lot more sense to me. And the idea that WWE can be slotted into this new thing that's controlled by Endeavor, where they already uh, own UFC. And so that that working relationship between uh, a headstrong founder in Dana White and another uh, headstrong CEO in Ari Emanuel, that already exists. So perhaps it could work again uh, with Vince McMahon in the picture as well. Do you see legit synergies between these two companies? Well, I do in the sense of, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if this is a synergy or not. Uh, I, I buy the logic that Endeavor knows what it's doing uh, with an entity like UFC. Uh, it, it went, bought UFC for like $4 billion when that deal happened um, uh, a few years back. Uh, the, the stated enterprise value of UFC in this new uh, entity is more than $12 billion. We'll actually have to see if that's true once the company starts trading publicly, if, if, if public investors buy that or not. Um, but certainly, there's no doubt that they have uh, dramatically improved annual revenue through a number of uh, media rights deals uh, and live events promotion. So in the sense of sort of operational synergy that Endeavor knows what it's doing with WWE, I buy it. Uh, you know, do I think that there's like some like back end uh, redundancies, you know, with, with media rights deals and other things with live events that can possibly be cut out from a cost-cutting perspective. Sure, it's probably not huge between WWE and UFC. They are their own thing. One is scripted, one is not. Um, so there's not. it's not like these two entities are exactly the same thing. But, you know, I, I, I can at least understand why Endeavor wanted WWE and why they think uh, it can be even more profitable under its control. You just hit on this, but I want to ask it uh, specifically. So the deal values WWE at nine point three billion. By the way, these, these are the this is WWE and Endeavor's numbers. So the deal values WWE at nine point three billion, um, and UFC, which is owned by Endeavor, obviously twelve point one billion. Um, that those numbers strike me as high. Let's take the WWE at nine point three. 
billion. Um, it's obviously a multi-billion-dollar company, but uh, I don't know. Had, you know, had you and you know, you're, you've been reporting on this, Alex, far more than I have. But you know, had I told you uh, seven months ago, a year ago, that WWE is worth nine point three billion, would you have blinked or would you have said that's accurate? Well, um, look, there's a premium on top of it, any sort of deal. So it, that number would have struck me as high, but it, whenever you're doing one of these uh, you know, uh, acquisitions, you're going to have to pay up for the target company. If you look, however, at what WWE is trading at today, it, it has a market cap of $7.3 billion. So that, that is an enterprise value exactly, so we're not really including the debt, but there's not like a whole lot of debt on WWE. Um, so, so more or less, that's kind of what the enterprise value is too. W what that indicates to me is that the market actually doesn't believe WWE is worth that money. Um, so perhaps this new publicly traded company, uh, which is going to trade under the ticker TKO, they have not named this new yeah. entity. I do um, like that. That's pretty cool. Actually, That is cool. Yes. Yeah. Of WWE and UFC. Perhaps it won't at least initially trade uh, quite as high as uh, management hopes it will trade at, but it will be uh, a publicly traded company that is about to embark on a very lucrative media rights deal. The media rights for both WWE and UFC are coming up for renewal, and Endeavor will basically try to put uh, its money where its mouth is. They will. They, they said in a in a conference call yesterday that they are great at doing media rights deals. So we will see. Um, uh, they will have the chance to prove this. And uh, in the coming months, they may show the investment world that they are great at doing this. And in fact, those valuations will prove to be accurate. So that's I'm glad you mentioned that because that this to me is sort of where the rubber meets the road. Um, you know, any analyst obviously worth their salt. This isn't you know you don't even need to get an MBA from Harvard or uh, or Yale to know this one. the The media rights deals uh, for Raw and SmackDown are both coming up for renewal. Um, UFC ultimately has to renegotiate their pay per view deal, but let's just take the WWE for now. I imagine when both these entities were trying to figure out. Um, if this could work and how much potential money can be in the pot, they're looking at the the renewals. Um, SmackDown uh, is currently um, under the Fox umbrella. Raw is currently under the you know the the Comcast, NBC, etc. umbrella. From your perspective, um, you know you need more. Uh, you need you need more bidders, right? To 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 get a bidding war going. I, I would think that both the current holders would be interested in this. But to me, in order for this to really sort of work, don't they need to jack this price up significant? And if that's the case, don't they need a, I don't know, an Amazon or an Apple or, one, or, or some kind of digital streamer to at least have some kind of interest in it? How do you see it in terms of the WWE meteorites? So I don't know exactly who's interested in this, but that's sort of my next project as a reporter at least in this world, is to figure out, okay, so who's potentially interested? Right. I, I do I do think you're on solid ground by saying that Fox and NBC Universal are both interested. This has been a, a like it's been a, a good partnership with with particularly NBC because NBC also owns the streaming rights to WWE, which Correct. It, it, through uh, which is on available on Peacock. Uh, the company's alluded, or, or at least Ari Emanuel, uh, who's gonna be the CEO of the new company alluded to the fact that they may explore a direct consumer, uh, like a new thing also. So 
maybe they will slice and dice the rights where like there's some exclusive content that's also on this new direct-to-consumer thing that they invent in addition to the broadcast cable rights, which are on uh, the NBC cable channels and Fox, uh, and then the streaming rights, which, again, may end up with Peacock or may end up elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. Like, if they're, if they're really going to maximize the value, the more bidders there are, uh, the more they can maximize it. So maybe they feel like this will be uh, another robust auction. That's the exact phrasing that uh, WWE CEO Nick Khan used for the, uh, for the acquisition. This was this has been a robust. Uh, there's been robust interest in this, so maybe the media deal also will have robust interest. We'll see in the coming months. I have to give Nick Khan credit. He's a true genius at making uh, wealthy people wealthier. That is a real trick, and uh, and he is I mean, very very good at that. The, 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 for sure, this is some inside baseball here, but like you know, there was a lot of WWE elements to this sales process in hindsight. Like Nick Khan was just on a number of TV shows, our CBC right. included, the past couple of days, talking about the robust interest in this. <laughs> All the meanwhile, knowing that they were going to sell the company to Endeavor. I mean, there's no he way that that deal came came about in 24 hours. He kayfabed. Uh, he kayfabed everybody. He of course, he knew the it. deal exactly. was going. He was part of the work, as it turned out. Uh, yeah. But you know, so look, credit to him and 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 uh, WWE uh, for for doing this, and of course, uh, this all lined up with WrestleMania, uh, which yeah. was just this past weekend. So the the whole thing, I think, was probably orchestrated. Yeah, well, the genius of WWE, of course, this is you know, and I consider myself a fan and, and have watched it for a long time, and AEW as well. You know, blending of reality and um, and scripted is the genius of it, and in this case. You're very dead on and accurate to say that that Nikon in his own business way was part of that because you go on, you say we got a robust market, and then a couple of days later it plays out, you look like a genius. Exactly. So, exactly. Good move on his part. You know, the, the one thing, and I do think this is legit, and this is if you're the Endeavor guys and women, I think that um, this is how you would look at WWE this is my, from my perspective. Their intellectual property is really, really unique like it is it is to me like worth you know theoretically billions of dollars in that if you could take the characters that wwe has invented and figure out ways to place them or or place what they do in other avenues particularly something like movies well then you could start to see like you know, if you could get, and obviously I'm sure with this is what the WWE guys are pitching, if you can get one of, like, we'll just use Roman Reigns as an example. If Roman Reigns could become the equivalent of, like, a Marvel movie, well, then you're talking about a billion-dollar franchise in addition to the wrestling stuff. Um, they have all the intellectual property in terms of all the old wrestling matches, so they can do many things with that stuff, whether it's, uh, you know, biographies and docs or Whatever else. Do you agree on that, Alex? That like, yeah, the media rights deal, obviously, they have to get big money for that. But the IP, to me, is really where there's so much potential money to be made down the road. 100% agree. And, and this gets into the question of like, yeah, there may not be synergies or that many synergies between UFC and WWE. But again, this speaks to the point that Endeavor kind of knows what to do with WWE. So the parent company, because Endeavor owns WME, the talent agency. So they their business is to maximize talent. 
Uh, so you're getting all of these WWE superstars. But by the way, the value of the IP was originally why I think WWE thought there may be more interest from some of the big media companies like Disney and NBC Universal, because I think their pitch was, look, take our IP, stick it on your streaming service, put it in your theme parks. You know, Disney, the Disney CEO, Bob Iger, uh, has made a reputation over the years of doing these phenomenal IP deals, whether it be Lucasfilm and Star Wars or Marvel or Pixar. Those have been the winners for Disney, the big IP deals that they've been able to put through the Disney flywheel. You heard that term again at the investor presentation, flywheel, the Endeavor flywheel. Um, so it, it absolutely is an IP play. I think maybe the idea of Vince McMahon coming under the tent for Disney and Comcast may have been a pill they didn't want to swallow, uh, yeah. an easier fit potentially at Endeavor. And also the fact that Disney and Comcast, I think, kind of have bigger fish to fry when it comes to acquisitions now. I mean, the two of them are, are going to have to figure out what to do with Hulu. There's probably going to have to be some other major media mergers here in the coming years. So the idea that maybe they would just spend $9 billion on WWE, just like the, the I'm, I'm not sure like from a timing perspective, uh, that, that that's the best use of their uh, their energy or their funds or their equity at this point. So again, I think maybe Endeavor was a more logical fit there in the end. Yeah, I mean, you know, I and kudos to the Wall Street Journal for for reporting out um, Vince paying off um, paying off uh, women in his his company. Um, again, public never heard that until they're reporting. And there's a lot of other stuff, obviously, that's that's happened with Mick, with Vince McMahon that th that does sort of raise some eyebrows here and and is problematic that always struck me alex is why maybe like a disney or something like wouldn't go all in on the on the wwe it doesn't seem like endeavor has i mean clearly they didn't have any issues with that that leads to um i read this today that um vince has a two-year employment contract according to a securities filing so you know i don't know how much you're into sort of the the day-to-day -day of WWE, Alex, but, you know, one of the things that fans have actually appreciated is Vince stepping away. Yeah. Paul Levesque, Triple H has had the creative now, and they've really had arguably their best year, two-year two stretch of, of creative. It does tie with Vince being away. Um, I can't see if Vince is signing an employment contract. This is just my perspective from the outside. I don't know. I, I can't see him not being involved. It would go against everything the dude has done over the course of his 70 years of life. Um, I guess it doesn't matter in some ways because the deal is done, but um, from your perspective, how much do you see Vince involved um, once this, uh, once this, this merger is, is official? Cause from my perspective, it seems like he's going to be pretty significantly involved. He told CNBC in an interview, he gave one exclusive interview to CNBC yesterday that he wasn't going to be in the weeds with creative. Um, again, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, so obviously, the reason McMahon did this particular deal was that he could stay involved in the company. Uh, and there certainly that was a major reason he did it. So, and, and, and he kind of alluded to that. He, you know, I think um, uh, CNBC anchor Scott Wapner asked him uh, uh, earlier this week when he did the interview, uh, you know, how hard did Ari Emanuel have to convince you to stay? And McMahon was like, uh, not that much. Um, so he alluded to the fact that. That he definitely wanted to stick around. This has obviously been his life business, a uh, family business. His kids have been involved. 
Uh, Paul Levesque, who runs creative, is his son-in-law, Triple H, as, as wrestling fans know him. So I would have to imagine he's going to be involved in this new iteration of the company, and that was part of the motivation uh, for doing the deal. I just, I think, you know, that, that's, that's the Occam's razor explanation here, right? Just logic indicates to you that he would want to be involved. What do um I, I you know I'm I'm far more focused on uh, WWE uh, and, and AEW just because I I happen to like find wrestling fascinating I think it's uh, there's some genius people who are writing the stuff I, I don't follow admittedly UFC uh, as close uh, but again you you report on the WWE deal I know at CNBC you certainly would cover UFC from a from from a, from a financial aspect um, what are your thoughts in terms of interest for them heading forward because um they you know the one thing about ufc that they have done brilliantly in my opinion is that they have made great interest in all of their fights that to me was one of dana white's geniuses that unlike boxing they they put the best you know they, they did best on best and there was an audience for that and people paid significant money for it um you know disney is in obviously a very deep deal with UFC. Um, it helps their streaming product. You would think again that they'd be a contending bidder uh, when that heads forward. But I also would think that there'd be other places that would be interested in UFC for sure. How do you how do you see them as a property right now? So this this sort of gets back into like the synergy discussion. So both UFC and WWE have their media rights deals. So we'll have to see if there's some overlap in who ends up buying those deals. Like you said, Disney has a deal with WWE with UFC does not have a deal with WWE, but maybe something like that, <clears throat> excuse me, changes uh, where there is more overlap or maybe not because from a maximization of dollar standpoint, maybe you just want <clears throat> as many media partners as you can get. That has sort of been the NFL's take on this, right? Just try to spread the wealth, try to get as many different buyers, whether it's, you know, YouTube TV with Sunday ticket and ESPN with Monday night football and CBS and Fox with the broadcast and NBC with Sunday night football, et cetera. So maybe we'll see a whole variety of media rights there. I mean, UFC has been a phenomenal success for Endeavor. So they, I think they made $1.3 billion in revenue last year. Um, and that's, you know, that, that, that is uh, uh, orders of magnitude more than when Endeavor acquired UFC about, what was that, six, seven years ago now? Yeah. Uh, so it, it, like, from a live event standpoint, what, you know, you, you've seen sort of the, uh, what I would say is a similar um overlap between uh social media right that like you know the uh, logan paul now wrestles for the wwe and 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 the ufc went after him i think he said earlier this year you know he acknowledged that 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 uh, dana white entertained the idea of letting paul you, you know actually step inside the octagon uh so i i'd have to imagine that those types of synergies will continue here where there's this just general overlap of culture wwe ufc maybe they start to look even more alike and you've got you know athletes that are doing one or both or you're starting to see ufc fighters maybe wrestle in wwe like all of these things i think must be part of the equation for Ari Emanuel and Vince McMahon to want to come together i imagine we'll just see the two organizations looking more alike than more dissimilar in the years to come. All right, let's finish up with this, and we'll do this quick, because I want to have you back for a, for a longer discussion just on this topic. Um, the NBA, obviously, is coming up for rights renewal in a little bit. That's going to be a 
major sports business story. I don't think there's any doubt that D- Disney would like to renew with them. It's it's just too important a property for ESPN for them to walk away. Warner Brothers Discovery, I think, has given some mixed messages in the market in terms of do they want it, if they want it, how much do they want it. But again, going back to Turner, they have a long-time association with the NBA as a product. And if they don't have the NBA as a product, I'm not sure why they'd be in sports. That's sort of how I'd look at it. And then unquestionably, Alex, as you know, there will be interest in a place like Amazon or Apple, et cetera. I just I think to have a chance at one of the big four, if you're one of these uh, if you're one of these new 2.0 players, that's that should be very, very attractive for a uh, not necessarily like a, like half the package, but some kind of premium package where you get some postseason. Um, as we talk today on April 4th, 2023, What's your sort of top-down view of, of where things stand with potential people being interested in the NBA? I don't even think you need me on the show, Richard, because that explanation was as good as I could have given you. I mean, that's pretty much Thank exactly you. what I would have said. I think Disney is almost a lock to renew. I think Warner Brothers Discovery, not only not, – you, you said you don't even know why Turner would be in sports – I don't even know why the Turner Networks, TBS and TNT, would exist if they didn't have the WWE. I mean, they have March Madness, I guess. But other than that, they would just be showing reruns of scripted programming without without uh, uh, the NBA. So, it, 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 you know, if, if you take David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, at, at his word, uh, what what he the, the 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 big message from him over the past you know almost year now that he has run that company is. There's linear TV is still a great business, right? And and we need to slow our roll a little bit on just streaming, you know, spending on streaming for streaming's case because this is not a, as good of a business as as the current, uh, you know, bundle. And we want to keep the bundle going as long as possible. Well, if you want to keep the bundle going as long as possible, you can do your part by buying the NBA and putting that on <laughs> the cable right. channels. Good so that, but that said, he's also said. We don't want to be in the sports rental business anymore, and we don't need the NBA. So those are your mixed messages that you were talking about. Look, there is an exclusive negotiation window with incumbent players that doesn't run up until early next year. So what does that mean? That means that Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney can negotiate with the NBA, and only Warner Brothers and Disney can negotiate with the NBA up until early next year. So the the deck is the, the the deck is stacked for them to be a part of this new solution. I think undoubtedly there will be a third player to your point, uh, which would be a streaming service, Amazon or Apple, and maybe that third player will take a decent amount of games away from a Warner Brothers Discovery, so that they don't so that that the, the cost of the NBA will come down for Warner Brothers Discovery, and they can use that to say, look, we're being cost conscious for our shareholders here. And like, yeah, we're still paying for the NBA, but maybe we're not paying this enormous increase like we've paid in the past. And like you've seen with the NFL, where there's just, you know, 80, 90, 100% uh, uh, price increase on these sports renewal deals. So that's what I would expect. I did report uh, a month or two ago that NBC would love to get the NBA back. Um, Yep. Makes sense. But, you know, NBC is on the outside looking in because they don't have the exclusive window. They, they're going to have to have the existing partners waive that exclusivity in order for them to get under the tent or the NBA just say, look, you know, we feel like the NBC is so valuable because of, I don't know, nostalgia reasons or, or the existence of the NBC broadcast network 
that Warner Brothers Discovery doesn't have, something like that, in order for, for NBC to really have a good shot at this. So I, I would say the most likely scenario here would be some combination of Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, and a large streaming service. And maybe there's a fourth player that comes along, and that's probably either another streaming service or NBC. I'm definitely going to have you back, Alex. We'll, we'll, we'll go a full half hour on the NBA. Uh, Alex Sherman is a CNBC media reporter, uh, was all over the WWE Endeavor merger prior to, uh, prior to the actual announcement happening. So kudos to him. Some great sourcing there. Um, Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm definitely going to have you back. And uh, I'm really, really fascinated by what's going to happen with the NBA because I... Um, I do think if the streamers, the streamers really go in with some money, that's going to be an interesting negotiation. So I hope to, I hope to have you back in the next uh, couple months or so. And uh, and thanks so much. Continued success at CNBC. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Austin Carp and Chad Finn, as always, for a great roundtable media discussion. Want to thank uh, CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman popping on as well he's been on a couple of times he's always great and uh, check out his work on cnbc.com as well as cnbc if you like these podcasts uh, please head to uh, the archives page there should be some interesting things for you last couple podcasts include wwe announcer michael cole we had a great conversation espn broadcaster holly rowe um, who did her usual fine work in uh, dallas covering the ncaa women's final four Nicole Noren and TJ Quinn, ESPN investigative reporters, Fox Sports World Series broadcaster Joe Davis and Rich Giroli of The Athletic. Again, there should be stuff there that you like. Uh, leave us a five-star review and a nice note if you appreciate these conversations in this podcast. It helps a lot. want to thank uh, Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at uh, Odyssey and Cape's 13th for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.